0: One of the purposes of the scripture is to tell us what the living God is like. We call this special revelation. We open the Bible to learn about who God is and what he's made known of his purposes for the world he's made. The biblical authors tell us about God's character and about his power, his faithfulness, and his righteousness. What God is like. And one of the reasons the biblical authors will do this is to motivate us to true worship. True worship of the true and living God, for God alone is God, worthy of all of our praise and adoration, our exaltation and esteem. The Bible tells us about God so that our hearts will rightly exalt the living God. One of the purposes of Scripture is to also tell us what the wicked are like. The biblical authors tell us of their hearts and their plots As well as their destruction that they reap. The day of judgment that they will face. One of the reasons the biblical authors tell us the truth about sin and about the wicked. Is that our hearts might recoil at unrighteousness. That our minds might see the truth about sin and wickedness. And believe what the Bible says about that. And then turn from sin and wickedness to the living God. In other words the Bible knows what we need. We we need to know what God is like. And we need to know the true nature of sin and rebellion. And the Bible speaks the truth to us. Praise God. And in Psalm 36, David tells us about the nature of the wicked. And he will contrast the nature of the wicked with the character of God. What sometimes the Bible will teach in a variety of different places. David puts in one psalm what the wicked are like, and then what God is like. And for those with ears to hear and eyes to see, the response should be to turn from sin and to trust in the God described by David in Psalm 36. We look at Psalm 36, 11, when he says, Let not the foot of arrogance come upon me, nor the hand of the wicked drive me away. And it may be the case that David's context in writing this psalm is that he needs protection from God. He needs to turn to God, the living God, as refuge, because he's being opposed. There's not a lengthy historical note in the superscription at all. We're told that this is to the choir master and of David, the servant of the Lord. The only other time David is called the servant of the Lord in the Psalms is Psalm 18. He's a servant of Yahweh, and without knowing too many historical details of what his circumstances are, it seems that he is in circumstantial distress and opposition, And he needs to turn to the Lord. Psalm after psalm has found the writer in those kinds of circumstances. And here, in verses 1 to 4, he's going to describe the wicked. And in verses 5 to 9, he's going to describe the Lord. And then in verses 10 to 12, he's going to pray very specifically to the Lord for certain things. What are the wicked like? That's verses 1 to 4. What is God like? That's verses 5 to 9. And then prayers, specifically in verses 10 to 12, for God to act. In verses 1 to 4, the description of the wicked consists of seven statements about them. And before we look at statement number one, it's introduced with this very ominous claim that transgression speaks to the wicked deep in his heart. Before we are told what the wicked are like, we're told that the wicked are the way they are because of what they listen to. And in verse 1, what they listen to, it's as if sin's voice has been personified. So the transgression is addressing their hearts. Transgression speaks deeply within the wicked. It's a way of not just imagining that sin tempts. But that sin is actually personified here to speak and to allure, to tempt and to draw, to make promises and claims, transgressions speaking deeply within the hearts of the wicked. The reason this is important in the Psalms is because in Psalm 1, the righteous man, the blessed man delights in his heart in the word of God. And in Psalm 119, how can a young man keep his way pure? By hiding his word, the word of God, in the heart of the sinner. In other words, there is a competing voice to the voice of God. And that is the voice of transgression in the heart of the wicked. Transgression speaks to the wicked deep in the heart. As Alistair Begg once said, every sin is an inside job. And that's a way to imagine that transgression here is drawing upon the problem of our moral uncleanness. That we have been defiled inwardly. And that transgression provokes within the heart and seeks to draw with its very promises. This opening line is used in a different sense of speaking deeply within In what oracles are for prophets in later books of the Bible. Where the word of God would speak within the prophet's mind. Here, rather than an oracle from God, these are deceptive promises of sin. Deceptive promises of sin that seek to draw out what we can be tempted by and ensnared with. Knowing that the wicked have the voice of transgression speaking deeply within their heart. Let's look at expression number one of what the wicked are like. First, there is no fear of God before his eyes. There is no fear of God before his eyes. I think this means more than just reverence and honor for God, which the righteous are called to walk in. We're called to fear the Lord, to give honor and reverence to God, to love God in all of life. This is more than that. In light of the, the, the hearing of God being righteous or there being a creator over all things to which they are accountable, the wicked do not fear such a reckoning. They are not troubled at all in their hearts and minds. Transgression has spoken deeply within them and the voice of sin is what they attend to. In their eyes, they have no fear of God. We know that this is used by Paul in Romans chapter 3. He quotes Psalm 36 verse 1 when he's trying to describe the human dilemma in a fallen world. What is the problem of sinners in a fallen world? That innately they are bent away from knowing God in a true and worshiping way and bent instead toward idolatry and rebellion. And Paul says in Romans 3.18 from Psalm 36.1, There is no fear of God before their eyes. You know, when Paul reads Psalm 36, you know what Paul sees? The indictment of sinners in the world God has made. That rather than knowing God, seeking God, esteeming God, exalting God, they don't fear God. That is the height of absurdity. That is the... That is the downstream effect of human pride and rebellion. To live according to the voice of sin rather than out of one's delight in the word of God. The voice of sin leads to no fear of God before their eyes. The second expression in verse 2 now. The second expression of the seven. For he flatters himself in his own eyes that his iniquity cannot be found out and hated. This second description of the wicked, or of the sinner here, is that he takes some measure of comfort and feels rather good about, which is, which is what is meant by flattering himself. He feels rather good about, in his own mind, the idea that his iniquity will not be found out and hated. He's able, in some way, to manage it so he thinks. Rather than... The light of God's word identifying the blind spots of his life and the areas of his rebellion so that he might have that sin exposed and repented of and abhorred rightly rather than hating that sin and that sin being found out. He flatters himself that it hasn't been found out and hated. He thinks this is good news. I'm getting away with my wicked deeds. So he thinks. He flatters himself in his own eyes. You see the connection there between verses 1 and 2. There is no fear of God before his eyes. He flatters himself in his own eyes. So what's in his eyes? Not a fear of God. Self-exaltation. A flattery of himself. That his iniquity hasn't been found out. That it hasn't been exposed and hated. One writer says... That if he did uncover his sins, he might discover them in God's light and hate them. But instead, he tries to quiet his conscience. He tries to justify his ongoing one sin after another trek with his feet down a path of foolishness. And so he flatters himself for the time being. This is one of the descriptions of the wicked among the seven. Go to verse 3. The third description of the wicked, the words of his mouth are trouble and deceit. Because what goes on in the heart won't remain in the heart forever. If transgression speaks deeply within the heart of the wicked, Jesus teaches that out of our mouths and out of our actions overflow what is in the heart. Therefore, in verse 3, the words of the mouth of the wicked are, well, we're not surprised, they are wicked words. Trouble, deceit, not a commitment to the truth. Truth doesn't matter to the wicked. What matters for the wicked is saying whatever he needs to say in order to get what it is he wants. He's not committed to the truth. He does not fear God, and he's not seeking to love neighbor. He has wicked desires, and and the thought is, what do I need to say to get that? So out of his mouth... Come trouble and deceit. And not just trouble for himself, but deceit spoken toward others. Trouble caused for others. See, one of the downfalls of living in wickedness is not just in the vertical sense, your rebellion against God. But the harm your wickedness does to others. The words of his mouth are trouble and deceit. The fourth description, he has ceased to act wisely and do good. This is the end of verse 3. This fourth description, he has ceased to act wisely and do good. That's a negative way of saying he's not committed to wisdom and righteousness. If that wisdom and righteousness is that way, that's not the way he's going. He's he's not going that way. He has ceased to do good and act wisely. That means we can say positively, he has committed himself to the opposite. If he's not acting wisely, he's pursuing foolishness. If he's not committed to doing good, then he is drifting in rebellion and deliberation into evil. Look at the fifth description in verse 4. Verse 4 gives us this fifth expression. He plots trouble while on his bed. He is not spontaneously wicked. He plans to be. He's thinking about it. You know, and when rather than, as one writer put it... Rather than just being in bed at night reflecting on the goodness of God and the blessings of God and giving thanks in prayer to God, he's spending his time meditating upon the next evil thing he's going to do. He's plotting trouble while on his bed. The wicked are not those who are just somehow randomly caught up in the snare of temptation, this is their pursuit. They're not guarding their hearts and lives. These are not just people who say, well, you know, even the righteous sin, right? This is not about even the righteous who struggle with sin. We're talking about those who have no fear of God. The deliberation and direction of their life is wickedness. This is what they spend their time thinking about. He plots trouble while on his bed. The sixth description in verse four, he sets himself in a way that is not good That's wisdom terminology, a way, a path. He sets himself in a path that's not good. You ever looked at someone who was standing in quite literally a geographically dangerous place? Maybe somebody was wandering in the street and you thought, that's not a good place for them to be. Can't they recognize that if they are staying where they are staying, trouble is going to come their way? Or they're going down a path that's taking them away from where they intended. Someone said, I think you need to go, if you're trying to get to this place, I think you go that way. And they think, well, you know what, I'm going to go this way instead. And they go another way, a path that is not good. It does not accomplish what they were made for. This wicked person, in this sixth description, sets himself in a way that is not good. The path of folly and rebellion. That is the way that is not good. That is the way the wicked are on. And then the seventh description. He does not reject evil. He does not reject evil. Sin or transgression has whispered into his heart. And his words and his plans and his path are all according to sin. And that means in this seventh description, he's not rejecting evil. He's giving himself to it. Like this is his heart's indulgence. Wickedness. He never found a sin he didn't want to commit. He is headlong down the path of wickedness. Not rejecting evil. This is to say, this is an unrepentant sinner. Rather than turning from sin, rejecting sin, pursuing wisdom and righteousness with God as refuge, the wicked here have no fear of God. They do not reject what is evil. In fact, they spend their time plotting their next rebellious move. And they think they are so secure. In verses 1 to 4, he has given us the character of the wicked. Now, look with me in verses 5 to 9, the character of the Lord. The Lord is nothing like the wicked. The heart of God is not like the heart of the sinners. In verses 5 to 9, the character of the Lord begins this way Your steadfast love, O Lord, extends to the heavens, your faithfulness to the clouds. The language of steadfast love is covenant language, it's the love of God that He has for His people. His steadfast love and faithfulness in covenant with those in covenant with him. This steadfast love is to them. This faithfulness is shown to them. And his steadfast love and faithfulness to his people cannot be measured. That's the point of the poetic imagery. Extending to the heavens, his faithfulness extending to the clouds, it's a way of saying, good luck trying to count the exact inches of that. And and trying to get the right feet and miles of that. He's speaking of it from an ancient Near eastern perspective. Where they would look up and think. Is there any end to what we see? (laughs) It just seems so vast. And so great. And so glorious. He says. Well when I think of your steadfast love. That's what comes to mind. Something that on my own I can't measure. Your steadfast love. It extends beyond the heights of my ability to name it and measure it. Your faithfulness to the clouds in the same way. And then he speaks with other imagery in verse 6 about God's righteousness. The righteousness of God and his judgments. Like the mountains of God and like the great deep. Notice what he's doing in verse 5 is picking imagery that takes him away from the earth. And then in verse 6, he's picking imagery that locates him on the earth and under the land into the seas, the deeps. So he's looking upward into what seemed to be the unscalable heights. And he's looking to the depths and what seemed to be the unreachable depths. And he says, God, when I'm trying to talk about your love, and when I'm trying to talk about your righteousness, and when I'm trying to talk about your faithfulness, I can't use things that I can get my arms around. I have to talk about what's above me and what's below me with such vastness and grandeur. And Lord, that's the kind of language I offer. Your love is like this. It's a beautiful imagery. Powerful imagery. Heart-stirring imagery. Your righteousness and judgments here. In verse 6, the righteousness compared to the mountains of God. Mountains that are grand, immovable, dependable, powerful mountains that can be refuge. In verse 6, your judgments are like the great deep. The great deep that the human mind cannot fully assess. I don't know if really, really, really deep water bothers you. And I don't mean like you're fishing on a lake and you're like, I think the water's pretty deep. I'm talking about like Mariana Trench stuff. I'm talking about location of the Titanic stuff. I'm talking about the kind of deeps That that even seeing pictures of that, just, you know, thinking about it right now with you out loud, unnerves me. In verse 6, the judgments of God, there's an unsearchable aspect to it. And people sense this, even with the tech that people try to put together for excursions to go into the deeps of the waters. There is such a danger, isn't there? And we think about the recent tragedy in the summer of the, of the, uh, of the uh, water vessel that was absolutely compacted by the pressures of the deep. You think about in verse 6, the dangers and what seems to be an unsearchability to know it like we would know, you know how to map an area around us locally. The deeps have an unsearchable sense to them. I think that's the idea in verse 6. That God's judgments, His ways... His timing, His providence, the way He guides, His decrees, all of these things, His righteousness, His judgments, there's a might, a transcendence, an unsearchability, an ultimate unknowability about them that God is God and we are not like Him in this way. We're so limited. Verses 5 and 6 seem to depict a limitlessness, a vastness, an unsearchability. One of the ways he tries to talk about the greatness of God's steadfast love, faithfulness, righteousness and judgments is at the end of verse six, where his faithful love and righteousness is displayed like this. Man and beast, you save, O Lord, which is the language in Psalms and Job and uh, in uh, in other uh, language in the prophets of God's care for his people, care for creatures he has made that he is sovereign over all, even to deliver. We know that the people of God experience the delivering grace of God. And no doubt that's on the psalmist's mind. God's faithfulness, His steadfast love, His righteousness and judgments. What's one of the ways they are manifest in the lives of God's people? Salvation. At the end of verse 6, he seems to highlight that. In verse 7, he says, How precious is your steadfast love, O Lord, having given an image of vastness And unreachability around uh, the greatness of God's love with our very arms and hands, he says this is precious. How precious is your steadfast love? Now, you might use the word precious differently from how the psalmist is doing it. If you find an animal that is small and cute, and you might say, Oh, that's so precious, or something like that, you probably wouldn't go up to the Grand Canyon and say, Isn't that precious? That's probably not the word that would come to mind. And yet with the Grand Canyon of God's steadfast love and righteousness like mountains and vastness of judgments like the depths. He says at the same time these things with a word precious that seems to draw us into nearness, proximity, familiarity, intimacy, communion. The psalmist is not just theoretically aware of God's vastness of love. He has experienced it. So God's love and judgments are both vast and deep. And yet so near to us to be valued and treasured. Like something precious and dear to us. How precious is your steadfast love, O God? Because the steadfast love of God is not just for some of God's people. If we know Christ, His steadfast love is for us. We know that not even the Israelites were to think of this as limited to them. In verse 7 he says the children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings. We're reminded that in the days of Abraham the blessing of the family of Abraham would be for all the families of the earth. Because through the family of Abraham would come the Messiah. And that the wings or shadowy presence of God, His protective mercy and His steadfast love and His vast judgments... It would be for all those who come for him, Israelite and non-Israelite, Jew and Gentile. The children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings. This is a psalm to the choir master written by David according to the superscription. So part of Israel's worship in the recitation of this psalm would be to confess corporately together that God's blessing on us as his people is also through us because the people of God consist of all those whose refuge is Yahweh. The children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings. In verses 8 and 9, this last part of the section of God's character, what God is like, expands on what it means to be in God as God, our refuge. What does it mean to experience the steadfast love of God and to know it as precious? What is the experience spiritually for those whose refuge is this creator? In verses 8 and 9, they feast on the abundance of your house. You give them drink from the river of your delights. For with you is the fountain of life in your light. Do we see light? Verses 8 and 9 are moving things from the theoretical about God's love and pressing it in upon those who have come to know God. That in covenant with God there is a delight in knowing Him. There is a festivity, a joy that marks those whose Savior and Redeemer is Yahweh. And in verse 8 they feast on the abundance of your house. It's imagery no doubt that in David's day would make them think of the tabernacle sanctuary. And later in Solomon's day, the temple, it's a sanctuary place, this house, where there would be food and drink, where there would be sacrifices and offerings, some of those offerings of which people would eat, the priests and the people who would bring them. Not all the offerings, but some of the offerings. Leviticus 1-7 lays out those distinctions. And so the people of God have pictured in their institutional uh, tabernacle and sacrificial system coming to God communing with God, feasting with God, delighting in the presence of God, that imagery is being transferred here to all those, priest or non-priest, Jew or non-Jew, that the Gentiles, the nations, could know that in covenant with Yahweh, there is a feasting, a communing with God in His house. You give them drink from the river of your delights. The word delights contains the same consonants for the word Eden in the book of Genesis. The river of your delights, in other words, could have the most ancient background of all. The river flowing out of Eden in Genesis chapter 2 to remind us that what God has made us for and gives us delights to accomplish is a relationship with Him as His image bearers. There is feasting, there is drinking, there, this is the language of satisfaction and gladness. It's the language of communion and rest. It's the language of hospitality and welcome. It's the language of come and don't just come to a God thinking he's meager and stingy. But his house is full of abundance and you should come to feast. And you should come to drink, but not to sip. There's rivers of delights. So come to be satisfied in God those who know God and come to take refuge in the shadow of His wings and who think about the heights of His steadfast love and the depths and inscrutability of His judgments, they come to know God in joy. Though sin may seek to tempt and dissuade a life of righteousness, God's words and His promises and the delights of the presence of God with all of His truth and faithfulness and steadfast love prevail in the lives of his people, he holds us fast. In verse 9, for with you is the fountain of life. That's building on the river imagery of verse 8. Drink from the river of your delights, for with you in verse 9 is the fountain of life. In other words, why, why would I want to come to be satisfied in God? Because in God is the fountain of life. This is what we were made for. So come to God, not that you might receive something other than God, but that God may give you himself in Christ. For with you is the fountain of life. In your light do we see light. One writer said, these are some of the most wonderful words in the Old Testament. Their fullness of meaning no commentary can ever exhaust. Seems true. In your light do we see light? Light is a common metaphor for the presence and blessing of God on his people. Think about the priestly blessing of number six. Where the light of the countenance of God's face shines upon us. How is it that we come to know God? We are brought into his light. The language of light here I think is rightly understood in the words of Andrew Fuller. Where he says, This is about knowledge of God given by God. In God's light, we see light. We come to know Him, fellowship with Him, and have life in Him because He, in His covenant, steadfast love, has brought us to Himself. He has shown light, and in His light, we now see. We come to know, and we have life. The imagery of light brackets the whole Bible, doesn't it? Think of the first thing declared in Genesis 1, let there be light. And then at the end of the book of Revelation in chapter 22, 5, the Lord God will be their light. There is a fittedness in creation that light point beyond itself to the glory and majesty and revelation of God for his people. There's a reason in Psalm 19 where the psalmist says that the heavens declare the glory of God. And he spends some verses reflecting on the sun in the heavens. And then later in Psalm 19, he starts talking about the word of God. Because the word of God is like light. And as God makes himself known, shining upon us with the revelation of who he is and his son. In that light we come to see. In His light, we see light. Think about the Lord Jesus' claim. In, in John chapter 8, verse 12, one of the I Am statements of the book. The Lord Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. It's like Jesus says in Psalm 36, verse 9, In my light, you will see light. Come follow me. In my light, you will see light. I am the light of the world. We know light and life are bound up together, not only in the Old Testament, but in Jesus' language. Listen to the very end of John 8, 12. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. The light of life. This is what God is like. The psalmist has described the wicked. The psalmist has described the Lord. They are polar opposites. The heart of God and the love of God. The judgments of God and the righteousness of God. For those with ears to hear and eyes to see. We want to be drawn to the Lord. We want to follow Him faithfully. We want to walk in His light that we might see. We want to follow His Son. As new covenant Christians, this is what this means. We urge sinners that God has come to shine the light of revelation of Himself upon His image bearers. And we must come to Christ. We must follow Him. Trust Him. Look to Him as refuge and strength. Hope and life. There is a prayer that ends our psalm. These last three verses in verses 10 to 12 are a prayer for divine love and judgment. The psalmist knows God loves his people in covenant. We would say in, in the, in the uh, 2000 years after Christ, we would say this is a new covenant love of steadfastness and righteousness, we know. And here's what we pray in verse 10. Oh, continue. Your steadfast love to those who know you and your righteousness to the upright of heart. Oh, friends, if there's anything we need spiritually, it is this. That God's steadfast love described in such vast and glorious and grand ways that this steadfast love would ever be upon us moment by moment, hour by hour, day by day. This is what we need. We should pray this. We should pray that God in His abundant faithfulness would continue showing His covenant love and His love toward those who know you, the psalmist says, and your righteousness show that to the upright of heart. The upright of heart are not those who are morally perfect. Well, far from it, actually. These are those who are trying to turn from sin and look to God to hope and trust in Him. And in heart, they have been counted righteous by faith. They are the upright in heart. They follow the word of God. They want to walk a path of wisdom. The unrighteous in their heart, transgression speaks, and they want the voice of sin to guide their steps. This is different for those who are the upright in heart. They want to follow the Lord. They want to glorify Christ. They want to make much of Jesus. They want to turn from wickedness. They want to love God and neighbor. So he says, continue your steadfast love and continue your righteousness to your people. I think one of the ways we might pray this is to say, Lord, continue working in me and through me. Continue working all things for my good. Continue upholding and renewing me. Continue your fellowship and communion with me. Continue delivering me and your people. These are ways we might say the same kind of thing. Psalm 3610 is praying. He's prayed for God's steadfast love. And now in verses 11 and 12, divine judgment. Let not the foot of arrogance come upon me, nor the hand of the wicked drive me away. There the evildoers lie fallen. They are thrust down, unable to rise. He prays for the righteous to be vindicated and the wicked to be overcome. In verse 11, this is the vindication of the righteous. God's judgment exercised on behalf of his people. Let not the foot of arrogance come upon me. Now, the feet of the arrogant, they might, it might be talking there about a metaphor of the path of the wicked that are going to cross and, and seek to uh, destroy the, the righteous. It could also have in mind an ancient Near Eastern picture of someone's actual foot on an actual neck of those they have conquered. In the ancient world someone who was the prevailing uh, superior politically and geographically, could place their very feet upon those who had been conquered to demonstrate their might and their supremacy. I think he's saying here in verse 11, Lord, don't let the foot of the wicked prevail in that way. Don't let their foot get on my neck. Instead, um, in verse 12, There the evildoers lie, fallen. They are thrust down, unable to rise. Not only do they not triumph over the righteous, but God's judgment on behalf of His people ensures the downfall of the wicked. In in verse 11, the feet and the hands of the wicked are coming against the people of God, and He's saying, let them not prevail. Let them fail, God. Let their designs crumble. Let their plots burst into flames. And there in verse 12, the evildoers lie fallen. Thrust down, unable to rise. There is a comfort that verses 1-12 to give to us. What triumphs in the end is not the wicked. What triumphs is the word and plan of God and in and through his people, praise the Lord, for whom he works all things. For their good, as they love him and are called according to his purpose. We rejoice in the steadfast love of God. I love the way Paul reflects on the steadfast love of God. He calls it the love of Christ. And he reflects on this in Ephesians 3.18. And here's his prayer. He prays that God would give him strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. There's something paradoxical about prayer. The prayer there. That I would know the love of Christ that surpasses knowing. That I would know what I can't know. That I would come to try to grasp what is ungraspable. That in my seeking to follow and understand more of Christ. I would come into greater light of understanding. And what is beyond me in all ways. His love. So the invitation of Psalm 36 is to come to the delights of Christ. To the river of life for his people. Christ is the light of the world that you might see and live. That you might rejoice in his steadfast love which reaches to the heavens and to the deepest of deeps. We urge you to hope in Christ that you might be those upright in heart. And that you would then know moment by moment and day by day the steadfast love of God in which you live and move and have your being. The light of Christ's steadfast love for us.